0: This podcast is in no way affiliated with the Stars Production or Diana Gabaldon. All views expressed are solely our own.
1: Welcome to the Outlander Podcast, where the men are kilted, the women are winsome, and the whiskey is neat. Welcome
0: to Episode 201 of the Outlander Podcast. I'm Ginger.
1: And I'm Summer. And we are in love with all things Outlander. And now, on to our read-along. This week, We'll be beginning with chapter 54, entitled The Impetuous Pirate.
0: Joe P. writes, This title calls back to the sensationalist title of Claire's hospital romance novel, but these pirates are far, from impetu- are far from impetuous. Eileen P. writes, The chapter title, The Impetuous Pilot, was also the title of the romance novel Claire was reading when she first became friends with Joe Abernathy. I'm hoping... <laughs>
1: I didn't even remember that. (laughs) I'm hoping this means Jamie
0: and Claire will be doing a little role playing and not that they will encounter any actual pirates. We shall see. Claire and Jamie chat about what to do with their new property. If they free him, what would become of him? Jamie's idea is to sell him to someone who would treat him kindly. Claire has a thought that is an honest thought. It's easy to wish away these sorts of things we have knowledge about, but would be so much easier if we were ignorant. Quote, I fought back the uncharitable wish that I had never seen the one-armed slave. It would have been a great deal easier for me if I had not, but possibly not for him. Unquote. writes, The insidiousness of the system of slavery, selling and reselling, means that just setting Temeraire free is not really an option. Claire's outrage is from a moral, ethical position. Jamie has a far more experiential experience. Prison and indenture are not the same as African slavery, but there are similarities. And Lisa T writes, Claire considers the situation, which is a much darker twist on her own. Like Claire, the slave is both an outlander and a voyager. Quote, the mere idea of owning a slave frightened and disgusted me, but it was beginning to dawn on me that it might not be so simple to divest myself of the responsibility. Unquote. Just then the Artemist is hit. Not again. I'm, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, not again dude grange just then the artemis is hit they are thrown off their stools jamie and claire are it is pirates they've been boarded he tells claire to take marsali and to get below to hide behind the guano the blocks of guano (laughs) marsali looking for claire calls her mother claire Claire makes her way to the afterhold with the long-handled amputation blade in one hand and a cluster of scalpels in the other. As they hide below, they hear all the sounds of the fighting above. Then there was an explosion. Marsali freaks out and bolts. She's afraid they're going to sink and does not want to be chopped down there. Martina P. writes, Marsali grudgingly lets Claire in into her heart now that she is growing increasingly fond of her. It's very touching how she cares for, quote, Mother Claire. What a nice example Jamie and Claire set for her and her young marriage. I agree. Eileen P. writes, It is so sweet that Marsali calls Claire Mother Claire. I'm so glad they are becoming closer and that Marsali looks to Claire as a surrogate mother. And? First, a British man of war now pirates. Can't Jamie and Claire travel without getting entangled in some mess? They'd better not be separated again, and please no impetuous <laughs> no impetuous pirate rape scene. Lisa T writes This scene and the one that follows are reminiscent of Outlander when Jamie is going to meet Hodricks and he asks Claire to stay put, which of course she does not. The scene is a variation on Alander when Claire is at Fort William with BJR and he attempts to rape her and Jamie arrives just in time to save her. In this scene, Claire is the one to save Marsali. But in saving Marsali, Claire puts herself in danger. Down there in the hold with the guano blocks, Marsali shrieks. There is now light below with them. Claire comes out and sees that Marsali is in the arms of a large half-naked man. Then he sees Claire and his eyes widen. Claire throws a scalpel at him and Marsali gets away and runs for the ladder. He goes and begins to pull her back down and Claire swings the long-handled amputation knife at his foot. Quote, something flew past my head and a spray of blood spattered across my cheek, wet, hot on my skin. It was a toe. Verp. <laughs> exactly. I wrote yuck, but I meant verp. Mm-hmm. He, <laughs> he falls back from the ladder and goes for Claire. He grabs her sleeve and she pulls away and he rips it. And she goes at his face with a blade. He slips in his own blood and falls and she climbs up the ladder. He is still trying to grab her. Dude, for a big guy, he's got like moves. My goodness.
1: He's a sailor.
0: I know, but dude. He's
1: he's used to climbing rigging. That's that's true. And she's in a dress. That's true. I mean, I can barely climb stairs in a dress.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She comes up and there's black powder smoke everywhere. It is chaos up on the deck, but the guy is still after her. She goes for the rail and begins to climb. She immediately recognizes her mistake. This dude could climb forever and she is bogged down by her dress. He comes up even with her and spits in her face. I found that a little odd. Like I would understand if she spit in his face, but that's just that's as weird, but whatever.
1: Okay. We all have our own fetishes. Maybe Oh, is. Okay. That's true. Maybe it's his foot thing. Bleh. He keeps
0: pace with Claire as she climbs and he's hissing at her. He pulls a cutlass from his sash and swings it at her. Claire closes her eyes and she's like, Look, this is it. I hope it's quick. I mean, it's like she's that resigned, like, oh, I'm gonna die. Okay, please be quick. When she opens her eyes, the pirate is gone, and Ping An is about three feet away. Quote Ping An hated noise and commotion. Evidently. He didn't like Portuguese pirates either, unquote.
1: I don't think anyone does right now.
0: Oh, my gosh. No. Eileen P. writes, I can't wait to see the pirate chase scene in season three of the TV series. Claire fighting out the pirate while climbing the rigging. Saved by a pelican. It's going to be awesome. I mean, that sentence shouldn't exist, but it does. That's amazing. The sounds from below had changed. It was over. But Claire is stuck up high because she dare not let go even to climb since she's like shaken. The pirate ship was beginning to move away. She begins to climb back down. Jamie is okay. He was sitting with a cloth pressed to his forehead and there's a little bit of blood and Mr. Willoughby is there next to him giving whiskey to Willie McLeod. Claire inspects him and realizes he's bleeding, but it's actually her own blood. The next scene opens with Claire saying, quote, I am not going to die unless it's from heat exhaustion. Take some of this bloody stuff off of me, Unquote. Marsali had been pleading with her not to expire and <laughs> loading her up with blankets. Oh, my gosh. But indeed, she is injured. It's her right arm and she is feeling the pain now. She's seeing what's happened and she vomits. She's sick. Jamie tells her her condition. Quote, you have a bone deep slash down your arm from oxter to elbow, unquote. And the truth of it comes out. Damn you, woman. Will you never do as you're told?
1: Exactly.
0: Probably not. I said meekly.
1: Mister, she's honest.
0: Uh, except, t- Dude, that's one thing. She is. She's honest. Mr. Willoughby brings tea and Jamie is pissed off. Mr. Willoughby promises to come back later to help. Jamie's pissed off with the whole thing, not just not Mr. Willoughby. Fergus brings her her medicine box and they bring her a mirror and she is able to inspect her own wound. She says she'll need sutures and a needle. There is no laudanum since she'd used it all on the porpoise. She will have to have her arm sewn up without anesthetic. She drinks a cup of brandy. Jamie reminds her that she'll need to disinfect the wound with alcohol and oh my gosh. She tries to Hold it off for a bit. Like, you know, we can wait to... Jamie's like, nope, we got to get it done. And it was awful. Apparently, her screaming upset the men. (laughs) After they were done, Mr. Willoughby brings his needles to help with pain control. So he gives her like acupuncture on her... It was definitely over her um, shoulder area. And was it on on her hand as well? It was like several certain points, right? Yeah. And this helps with pain control somewhat. And he sews her up with his green silk thread.
1: He didn't think to poke her with pins before they poured
0: the alcohol on her? My guess is no, because it was going to be too violent. Like she would pull away. It was, I don't know that you could help that kind of pain. (laughs) Except with laudanum or knocking someone out. Lisa T writes, this scene is a role reversal for Claire and Jamie. Claire is the grumpy, sarcastic patient and Jamie is the healer. Just like Maître Raymond heals and teaches Claire in Dragonfly and Amber, Mr. Willoughby stitches Claire and teaches her how to use the wee stabbers. Joby writes, Nurses make notoriously bad patients. Marsali is overly solicitous and Jamie's fear manifests in anger and frustration. As Mr. Willoughby notes, Claire's screaming is distressing the men and it is a sign of how injured and distressed she is that she tries to stop rather than what we would expect her to do, which is tell them off in a very forthright manner. Mr. Willoughby steps up to stitch Claire's arm to the relief of both Claire and Jamie. Claire is not so far gone that she can't not be interested in how acupuncture works. Eileen P. writes, We see more layers to Mr. Willoughby's character as he tends Claire's wound. Perhaps due to his vocation as a poet, Mr. Willoughby observes and understands that Jamie's reaction to Claire's injury is not that of annoyance with Claire, but a fear of losing Claire. He is then kind and gentle in treating Claire's wound. Mr. Willoughby has come a long way from the caricature that we first met in Edinburgh. So Claire tells Jamie that the wound was from a cutlass. Jamie still doesn't know why the pirates attacked and it wasn't the cargo they wanted. She's just about to tell him that the one after her was speaking Portuguese when Fergus brings her attention, their attention to to a dead pirate. He shows them the necklace he was wearing. It had on it a number of things, including a tetradrachm coin. Now, Claire passes out from all of it, the pain, everything, but then later wakes, and she is in considerable pain. Jamie says that he's happy she's in pain because it means she's healing. Quote, you never feel a fatal wound. Unquote. Now, Marta had told him this, and this, this was heart All of Jamie's reading about, or Jamie's retelling Claire about this. This is the first we get of Kolada yo in this book. Other than him waking up and he thinking he, had his, he was in heaven. or it's
1: like, it's not the first. It's not my... <laughs> well,
0: no, this me. is his first description of the battle. We get... We, he wakes up after Culloden. There's not much we know about it yet. This is his first actual description of what's going on. So this had come to him from Myrta. All that she'd heard about him was that he died at Culloden. And they'd burned the bodies after Culloden too. And Jamie had found out at the slave pyre what it had been like for his comrades. Jamie has great guilt about surviving Culloden, even though, of course, it means that he gets to spend his life with Claire. He describes Culloden to her like we have never heard it before. Quote, I was happy, he said, not scared at all. I meant to die after all. There was nothing to fear except that I might be wounded and not die at once. But I would die. And then it would all be over. And then I would find you again. And it would be all right. Unquote. Lisa T writes, this reminds Claire escaping being burnt after the witch trial. Both Jamie and Claire have come very close to dying. I find it ironic that Jamie always had faith that he would find Claire again. Yet she, who had given up all hope of ever seeing him, thinking him dead, is the one who finds him. So Jamie had run through the battle untouched. Men falling around him, all around him. He'd reached the British lines unscathed. Jimmy had killed all four men who'd manned the cannon that he had run up to and he realized he'd made it behind the Eng- English line <laughs> so he tried to get back to join the Highland dead Quote, "He was sitting against a tussock near the middle of the field Murta. he'd been struck a dozen times at least and there was a dreadful wound in his head and I knew he was dead but he wasn't Jimmy had knelt next to him and held him Murta's eyes opened Quote, "He saw me and he smiled. He said, did be afraid of Valach. It doesn't hurt a bit to die. Unquote. Too many folk have died, Sassanach, because they know me. She reassures him and says, you haven't killed me. You didn't kill Myrta and will find young Ian. Later, Jamie says, quote, you know, I seldom wanted to go home to Leary. And yet, at least when I did, I'd find her where I left her. Unquote. She replies, and is that the kind of wife you want? The sort who stays put? Eileen P. writes, it's heartbreaking to hear Jamie talk about Culloden, the enormous loss of life and the unceremonious burning of the bodies. Entering the burning pile of bodies of the slaves is horrifying enough, but knowing he had experienced that once before magnifies that horror. Knowing Jamie had meant to die at Culloden, one wonders how he could have reached the British lines unscathed and then actually made his way back across the moor to lose Claire and live, to fight in order to die, yet live, to have Murta die in his arms, yet Jamie survived the bloodshed. It is understandable that Jamie would have survivor's guilt and wonder why he was spared. Jopi writes, The what-ifs of history, political and personal, play on the conscience of Jamie, who feels responsibility for so many, and the questions of why he survived at all add to that. Jamie has had a long association of linking pain with the continuance of life after floggings at Fort William. It's what he tells Claire after the witch trial. Pain means you're alive. Pain is also linked to a sense of responsibility. In giving himself to BJR, in taking a flogging for another, he takes pain for those he cares for, and in Claire's case, loves. Although we cannot bear to see her in pain, to hear Claire cry out is proof that she lives, after years of uncertainty, as well as proof that she lives with him. Martina P. writes, Jamie's excessive guilt and survivor's remorse are so tragic. Additionally, he always feels so guilty that God gave him the extraordinary gift of Claire and the rare love that they share. Why does he feel so unworthy of it? Why does he torture himself so? Nobody died on Culloden Moor because of him but for the desire of a free Scotland. And Lisa T. writes, Jamie is terrified that he will get Claire killed too. It's interesting that he tempted to hurt her by squeezing her injured arm to make her scream just to know that she's not dead. It's like pinching yourself to know that you aren't dreaming, but slightly more sadistic. (laughs) She says, I had to go there. You sadist, quoting Claire. He did get in a slight dig by mentioning Leary, but I think he meant it as more of an acknowledgement that part of what he loves about Claire is that she won't stay put he's making progress. This chapter has a lot of great parallels to Outlander and variations on a theme of what it is to be an Outlander and a Voyager. We also get glimpses into Culloden. The title is ironic. When Claire first reads The Impetuous Pirate, it is in the safety of a 20th century hospital with her new friend, Joe Abernathy. At the time, she never would have dreamed that she'd encounter real pirates, a clue to Joe's ancestry, let alone find Jamie
1: chapter 54, and on to chapter 55, entitled Ishmael.
0: Lisa T. starts us off. The title of this chapter, as we know from earlier chapters, comes from Moby Dick by Melville. It is also the name of Abraham's son in the Bible. Additionally, Ishmael is the name that Joe Abernathy's son, Lenny, now uses. According to Joe, Lenny is Ishmael third. therefore he must be Ishmael Jr., one name evokes a sea voyage, the Bible, and Dr. Joe Abernathy. Thank you to herself for a minor head explosion on that one. So in this chapter, Claire is convalescing. She's in her cabin, and she's sleeping, and she's, she's dreaming, actually. And Lisa T. writes, Claire's dream is reminiscent of the skeleton that she and Joe looked at. Claire is startled by the crash and is in severe pain. In her cabin, there's a crash. Jamie had run into something in the dark of the room. He was actually looking for her medicine box. He's hit his head. It's not a concussion, she says, and I love the way she kisses his bump and then he kisses her arm. Lisa T writes: the sweet exchange between them brings up the ghost of Brie when Claire kisses his head, moved by an instinct as old as motherhood. It also reminds us that Jamie has a very thick skull. (laughs) (laughs) Eileen P. writes, I was surprised that Jamie had never been kissed to make it feel better. As Claire notes, it is an instinct as old as motherhood. Although Ellen died when Jamie was young, he surely would have been kissed on every bump and scrape of toddlerhood before her death. That is unless it was not a familiar custom. I can't find any information as to the origins of this practice. It just seems to be so timeless. Yeah, it's pretty timeless and it's pretty current because I know last time I don't know where I was or what was going on, but I heard myself and Summer kissed it. What? (laughs) You kissed my boo-boo.
1: I kissed what?
0: My boo-boo. Nope. (laughs) When I, you know, not, I'm not being nasty. It's when you have a boo-boo, like you have an owie.
1: Yeah, that's what moms are for. I'm not your mom.
0: Except when you're my sister and there's no mom around. I do
1: not, I've never... (laughs) Do not spread that around. I do not kiss your boo-boos. <laughs> I do not put my mouth on your gaping wound. Oh, you, you
0: wouldn't put your mouth on your daughter's gaping wound, Summer. I mean, unless it's to suck out the venom.
1: I mean... And, uh, in that case, it's, I, not, it's, I might, it's not gaping. I might put a Band-Aid on it and then kiss the Band-Aid, but I, I wouldn't do that with you. You were older than me. If anything, you kissed my boo-boos. Oh, I'm not saying when we were younger. I'm saying now. I No, definitely not now.
0: You so would. If I asked you to and I were really, if I were in the hospital or something, you would kiss my boo-boo.
1: If I was drunk, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> that is about the only only instance in which I could see that happening. Okay, we'll see. We'll no, see. No, we'll see. It's like you're plotting <laughs> Try to make it happen I'm now. not trying to plot anything. I'm just saying we'll see. One day you might. You never know. Uh, I'm pretty sure I know. So it seems there's a prisoner
0: who's been bashed about from the pirate ship. But it's not a pirate. There was a man who dived off the Bruja into the sea. Now, maybe he meant to escape from the pirates. Now, Claire said that she'd take a look at this man. So they have someone in their custody. We find out that he had jumped off of the ship that had Because the Bruja was not the pirate ship. I mean, it was a ship, but the Bruja was not the one that ran into them. That was a pirate ship that we don't know about yet. But the pirate, this person jumped off of that pirate ship to escape. I mean, I'd I'd want to escape too. And he was rescued by Jamie or rescued by someone uh, by their ship. And he seems to be an escaped or if not escaped, a slave who's not, you know, with his owner, with his master. So Claire, and he's he's injured, and Claire says that she take a look at him. Now, this man looks African, not island-born. Jamie had spoken pigeon to him to tell him that they were friendly, and um, Jamie cuts loose his bonds. Now, Claire tends his wounds as best she can, and they believe that he can understand English but that he's afraid to say anything and give away his place of origin because then he might be returned to his owner as far as he knows. Now they invite him with them to go to their cabin to eat. Jamie introduces them to him. The slave says that he's called Ishmael and that he's a cook. Jamie asks how the Bruja had come to have him. Ishmael was says he was out catching fish by the river and a ship had come up the river and he was taken by its men yes and he had seen young boys on the ship jamie tells him that he would set him ashore at any port he wanted if they helped him find young ian and the man's like look i didn't see i got only got to see him once i didn't see much and then he's like there were 12 boys who spoke like jamie scottish like so they spoke like dogs basically they growled and then he goes on to say four boys had blond hair six brown and two black One was a big guy, this guy who had seen them only once, only got one little peek, and he knew all of this. It was kind of funny. Claire, meanwhile, is drifting off to sleep, dreaming of Joe Abernathy. She thinks of the two men. She's thinking of any possible link between this man and Joe. She looks at the paperwork of the slave that she owned. That was Abernathy. And his brand wasn't a fleur-de-lis as they had thought. It was a 16-petaled rose the jacobite emblem of charles stewart eileen p writes jacobites apparently live on in the caribbean the slave brand for abernathy depicts a 16 petaled rose which is the symbol of charles stewart it's a small world after all lisa t writes in the previous chapter the yeah, slaves you should, have, you should have said it's a grand J after all oh lord that's true In the previous chapter, the slave's story was similar to Claire's. In this chapter, the prisoner's story seems to have some parallels to Jamie's. The scars on his back are similar to Jamie's. He also shows much of the same stubbornness that Jamie displayed when he was John's prisoner. Jamie shares his whiskey and food with the prisoner, just as John shared his port and food with Jamie. And then, Ishmael. Again, Jamie carefully questions Ishmael and in a nod to both John and BJR. This is one of my favorite exchanges in the entire book. It could easily be between Jamie and John, but it's almost like a scene might be between Jamie and Joe if they had ever met. Both wary, but both showing mutual respect. I love Ishmael's description of listening to Gaelic. He goes on to describe the boys, quote, I only seen them once, mon. You see, you tell you all I see, though. Quote, he closed his eyes and frowned, the vertical lines on his forehead drawing together. Four boys be yellow-haired, six brown, two with black hair. Two shorter than me, one maybe the size of that griffon there. He nodded toward Fergus, who stiffened in outrage at the insult. One big, not so big as you. Unquote. So yeah, he just got one little quick look. Claire begins to wonder if Ishmael is Joe's ancestor. As I mentioned earlier, Lisa Granger. says... Grange, exactly." See, I knew you'd get into it. As I mentioned earlier, Lisa continues, it's almost like Jamie meeting Joe, a parallel to Claire meeting John. Now, Claire says that they may have had a stroke of luck. Once Ishmael is escorted out of their cabin, she tells Jamie about the scar, the brand on Temeraire. She thinks they come from the same place. She thinks it's from the Mrs. Abernathy, Mrs. Abernathy's place on Jamaica. They are wondering who on earth and why on earth someone would want 12 young boys. And it's possible they have the treasure, too. Claire says that she asked Fergus to make sure Temerea got a look at Ishmael. If they came from the same place, that should confirm it. Lisa T. writes, Twelve lads,' Jamie repeated, his momentary look of excitement faded back to a frown. "'What, in the name of God, would someone be wanting to kidnap twelve lads from Scotland?' Perhaps he's a collector, I said, feeling more lightheaded by the moment. Coins and gems and Scottish boys. And Bob is your uncle. That's quite a collection. It is. Eileen P. writes, Could Ishmael be George Abernathy's ancestor? Although there is no physical... George? Did I say George? You said George. Joe Abernathy's ancestor? Although there is no physical resemblance, their voices are similar. This wouldn't be the first time Claire's met someone's ancestor in her time travels. Remember Frank's ancestors, Alexander Randall, Mary Hawkins Randall, and let's not forget Blackjack Randall? I think Diana Gabaldon likes to create these ancestral ties, so I think it's certainly plausible that Ishmael is Joe's ancestor. Also consider that Joe's son, Lenny, changed his name to Muhammad Ishmael Shabazz III. Coincidence? I think not.
1: I would just like to say that as far as looking like one's ancestors, um, when I first started on Ancestry.com, I was doing, I got really into genealogy for a while and I was tracing everything back and my grandparents um, or my grandfather's parents died when he was very young. So we we never met them and uh, we never got, to, I never got to, I personally, I don't know if you did Ginger, but I didn't never saw any pictures of, of, um, our great grandparents on my dad's side anywhere. And in linking, uh, family trees with other people who'd created them, some of them had pictures. And we'd always assumed that my, that the, the paternal side of my father's family was where the 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 very specific look came from like my grandfather my my father very strongly resembles my grandfather so in my brain it was just a male trait that you know we everyone looked like my grandfather and so i assumed that that was his uh surname's trait and when i I found I stumbled upon these pictures on, on ancestry dot com of my great grandparents. He actually looks almost identical to his mother. Oh wow! So yeah, so it is. I mean, in a masculine way. Don't take that the wrong way. <laughs> but the the you know my maiden name and Ginger's maiden name um, are uh, that trail that I assumed. You know, oh, we look like that. We don't actually look like that because mm-hmm. we we look like that back two degrees. But then after that, we fork off in a completely different direction. So to say that it was always a trait of one surname is not wholly, you know, it, it's very possible to not look if, you know, if you go back more than a couple generations to not yeah. completely look like that, that family line.
0: Joby writes... As Jamie and Ishmael have a battle of wits about the company of the Bruja, Claire, in her drowsy state, has subconsciously put the pieces together. In a Sherlock-like mind palace experience, the names Abernathy and Ishmael join in the echo, join the echo of a familiar voice, and the discovery that the brand isn't a, isn't a fleur de lis but rather the Jacobite 16-petaled rose work together to give Claire the next step in the search for young Ian. And Lisa T finishes with, in a final touching moment with which highlights the role reversal of Claire and Jamie, quote, rest and I'll send Marsali down with some tea. Whiskey, I said, and he laughed. All right then, whiskey, he agreed. He smoothed my hair back, leaning into the berth, kissed my hot forehead. Better, he asked, smiling, lots. I smiled back and closed my eyes. Claire gave Jamie whiskey, held him, and smoothed his hair in his sleep. Think Jenny telling Claire about Jamie smiling in his sleep when he was recovering. Jamie gives Claire whiskey and kisses her head to make it feel better. Quote, in an instinct as old as motherhood. But now he's made this simple sweet kiss on Claire's forehead an instinct all his own.
1: And that was chapter 55. Join us next time when we discuss chapter 56 entitled Turtle Soup. Yes. So thank you as always so much for listening. We look
0: forward to our next episode. Thank you to our generous partner, Zencaster, who offers high fidelity podcasting. Check out Zencaster and use coupon code Outlander. 20 Outlander20 for 20% off 3 months or 20% off for a year. Connect with us. Visit our website at outlanderpod.com. Find us on Facebook. facebook.com/outlanderpod. We'd love for you to join our Facebook community at outlanderpod.com/group. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at outlanderpod